Good morning. Can you hear me? Am I on? Okay, good. All right. Well, again, it's a joy to be here to present the Word of God to you. Um, so my sermon today is one that I did over the summer, actually, filling in for a church called Chapel on a Hill in Cedar Grove. For the past two years, Pastor Joel, who's pastor over there, has asked me to fill in when he goes on vacation. So it's been a blessing to be able to fill in there every year. It seems to be something that I'm going to be doing continually, and I'm happy, of course, to do that. And I've referenced several times, to many times, to these verses that are in this text, but never actually preached a whole sermon or sermons on it before this summer. And it's going to be that famous passage that we call the Beatitudes, in the beginning of our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. So my title this morning is simply going to be A Journey Through the Beatitudes. And obviously, for the sake of time, I only have one sermon here, okay, it's not going to be as exhaustive as I'd like it to be or as deep as I would like to go because, again, it's just one sermon. Again, if Pastor was preaching through this in, our, in the Sunday morning, he probably would spend one week on each of the Beatitudes, but today we're going to do for where God has me, we're going to go through all of them. And we can take the approach that these words ought to be descriptive of true converts, they certainly should. We can focus on the blessings, we can look at why certain blessings were attributed to certain descriptions, and really it goes on and on and on. There's many ways to approach this. But as you will see, and I think this is important, I believe they are all connected, and they do somewhat build off one another. So what I would like to do is first look at the first clause and see who is blessed, and then I want to look at why they are blessed in the second clause, and then share some things that I saw to help us in our application. And I'm just going to trust that our good Lord is going to give each and every one of us the strength that we need through his spirit and help us to absorb exactly what he wants us to absorb. And I'm sure that some here might need to absorb more than others. But wherever we are at, I trust that God will meet our need. So to give honor, like we always do every morning, let's stand as we give attention to God's good and perfect and authoritative word. Matthew chapter 5 Verses 1 to 12, and this is what the Scripture says. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, 
For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let us pray. Father, we love you. We're here because there's no greater place to be than to be together as a family, which you made us, to worship the living God, to grow closer in our relationship with you, in our relationship with each other. Forgive us of our sins. Sometimes they're more than we would like, and we confess them to you. And again, we're thankful, Lord God, because we know we are forgiven as far as the east is to the west. That's why it hurts when we sin. Help us, Father, to be right now. Help us to be attentive to your good and perfect word so that it can have its perfect work in us. Lord, help us to decrease so that you alone would increase and we'll give you all the honor and all the glory. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. You may be seated. Okay, so, very familiar passage, right? We all know this passage. We all should know this passage if we're Christians, and if you're here and you've never heard it, well, you have a wonderful opportunity to be able to hear God's perfect word to you. So Matthew chapter 5, let's look at the first two verses, and let's look first at the audience. We need to realize who is the audience that Jesus is speaking to. Verses 1 says this, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, and I'm going to stop right there for a moment. So the audience is maybe not what you think. You know, many times Jesus spoke, there was so often Jesus spoke to crowds, right? At numerous occasions, we know two that are recorded, he fed thousands of people, right? John 6 said the same at one, one time that they came back the next day because they were filled. He said, you seek me because you were eight of the loaves and you were filled. Then Jesus began to say some difficult things that unless you understood those spiritually, they're really hard words to understand. And after his message, many of them left. And he said to his disciples, are you going to go as well? And Peter, in one of his great statements, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. So here, Jesus saw the crowds, and then he went up on the mountain. And who came to him but his disciples? So we must first remember that the Lord is speaking to his disciples. I don't believe he's speaking to the whole entire crowd. And he opened his mouth and began to teach them. Now, disciple is the Greek word mathetes, and it's one who follows the teaching of a number. It has the same root as we get the word discipline, right? A disciple is a disciplined follower of another person. So let's look first at those who are blessed. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And I'm only going to go through the first clause in this first part. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We're going to see that word blessed in all these verses. So blessed is the Greek word makarios, and it means fortunate and happy. Namely, because God God approves of us. He has accepted us in the beloved. He has saved us, adopted us, 
He rewards us. He keeps us. He empowers us. He guides us. He sustains us, right? He does so many, so many things to all of us. So happy are we and fortunate because those of us who are his children have the God of all creation's approval. Stuart Weber says this, says, Our modern idea of happiness is a diluted version of the joy implied by the term Jesus used. Our idea of happiness is a dependence on circumstances. Instead, God's happiness or joy is dependent on the assurance of God's blessing, sometimes present and often future, not on current circumstances, and it abides deep and undisturbable within the believer. And I like those words. Fortunate means that we are the receivers of some unexpected good. That is, it's not expected in and of ourselves because of the reality of our fallen nature. We do not deserve any of the blessings that God gives us, yet we either have them or can have them. So Jesus is going to speak of nine blessings that his disciples here possess. And the first one he says here is, Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's patokos, pneuma in the Greek. And it means of little value, a needy, one who is a beggar, or helpless in oneself. Essentially, it means spiritually bankrupt. When one is spiritually bankrupt, he recognizes his need for God's grace and mercy. Or he will not stand before a holy and righteous God. He knows there's nothing he can earn. He knows that he was dead in his trespasses and sins and was made alive in Christ Jesus. And even when one realizes their salvation and they walk in obedience and they receive rewards, they are still only doing that which they ought to be doing and there's nothing praiseworthy in that. We are unworthy servants. So this first beatitude, I believe, sets the tone for all the rest. And I'm going to spend a little more time on this one. And it has to do with us having the right perspective and the right attitude concerning ourselves. It means that we do not hold ourselves as the most important person in the world, nor do we think we are good in and of ourselves. To be spiritually bankrupt implies several things. First, that we are in desperate, desperate need. And because of this, we are broken and we are crushed in our spirit. But there is good news when it comes to that. The psalmist says in Psalm 34, 18, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. In Psalm 51, 17, it says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So if you're broken, that is a good thing. It's a good place to be. It also means that we ought to be humble. Isaiah 66, 2 says, For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles 
at my word. In other words, he understands the word of God's power to save him. He understands the authority that it holds. He doesn't have the attitude of, I know what the word says, but, and then whatever comes after that but. Rather, he trembles before it because it's authority, and he understands that he desperately needs it. Remember that the poor in spirit is one who is needy. And we don't normally think of being needy as something good, but it does in relation relation between us and God. Psalm 69, 33 says this, For the Lord hears the needy, and he does not despise his who are prisoners. So if they are needy, they are dependent, right? The poor in spirit recognize that they are forever dependent on their Lord. This is a concept that has always been. So the poor in spirit are those who know their sin, they hate their sin, and are repentant of their sin. They are forever needy and dependent on their God. And he who they depend on never fails. He never ceases. He never sleeps. He is perfect and has given him his perfect love. And they never forget this totally. They may lose sight of it from time to time, but they never forget. So some initial thoughts here. Again, I said the first is the basis for the rest. If we do not possess or experience the first, we will not possess or experience the rest of these. Again, this speaks of the attitude the believer ought to have concerning himself. If our attitude is wrong and contrary to what we see here, we will not have the correct attitude with the following, and it will affect our whole life and the way we serve the Lord and do ministry. The Bible has a lot to say about how we ought to view ourselves in relation to both God and each other, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. In Romans chapter 12, and we know in Romans, the first 11 chapters, he gave his theological masterpiece, right? He's not done yet, but he gave a lot of doctrine. And in chapter 12 begins the the practical part of it. Now that you know all this, this is what should happen. This is what it should look like, right? And we always quote from Romans 12, 1 and 2, and we should. It's a great verse where we learn that we should be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And the first thing he says how this looks is in Romans 12, 3. He says, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly than he ought to think but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. We know that we are just instruments in the hands of God, and we do not choose what instrument we will be, nor do we choose to what extent we are in that instrument. This is a principle that goes so deep. We know that we cannot take credit For our God-given talents, just like we cannot boast of how tall we are or what nationality we are and etc. Therefore, our attitude ought to always be that of gratitude and humility always. Paul reminded his protege Timothy of this in the first letter to him. In chapter 1, verse 12, he says this. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me 
because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet, I was shown mercy. Amen. Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. No other, right? You see that Paul recognized that he was nothing, absolutely nothing in and of himself. He didn't deserve all that was given to him. He said this to the church at Galatia in chapter 6, verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. If one of us gets to this point in our lives, it means that we have first grieved the Spirit because of the deceitfulness of sin and entertain certain thoughts of pride, forgetting that we are but dust, jars of clay that have been given life in Christ. It means that at some point, church, we lost sight of who we really were a part of Christ and what we now are only in Him. And because we are only what we are because of Him, we should live in accordance to this. And finally, perhaps there is no better example of being poor in the Spirit than the tax collector in the parable that the Lord gave. It's one of my favorite parables. Now remember that the Pharisee is a picture of outward holiness, outward righteousness, and the tax collector, outward depravity, right? And listen to the words that our Lord gave here. And he says this in verse 9 of Luke chapter 18. And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, and I love this, it always hits me really hard, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And brothers and sisters, you see here that the tax collector was one who knew his spiritual bankruptcy before a holy and a righteous God. And guess what? He was fortunate and happy because God approves of him and has accepted him in the beloved. So the saint who is mindful of this is indeed blessed. Then the next one says here in verse 4 of Matthew, Blessed are those who mourn. Mourn is the Greek word pentheo, and it means mourn, lament, or to be sad. For what? These are supposed to be blessings, right? We don't think of mourning and lamenting as a blessing. Well, the one 
who is spiritually bankrupt, who has been given the great gift of salvation by grace, uh, grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone, is forever grateful, but has a present reality until he goes home to be with the Lord. And that is he is dual-natured, right? He still sins. Now, it doesn't define him, but he still does it, as Romans 7 is very clear. And he hates it, right? He hates it and is saddened by it. But that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. He hates his sin and he mourns over it because he knows he has been delivered from its penalty. He knows the cost of his salvation, the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. He knows that he's been saved for something so much better, namely, to glorify the very one who made him and the very one who saved him with his life of obedience. So even though it is evident that we will fall short, we all will, we know that it isn't an excuse to sin. Romans 5 talks about the two different federal heads in this world, Adam and Jesus, right? All in Adam die. They're guilty as soon as they're born. But for those that are in Christ Jesus, he becomes our new head. We have his righteousness forever. And Paul, anticipating what maybe some of the Romans might have thought in their head, he beats them to the punch like he often does in that book. And he says in this, in verse 6, chapter, uh, sorry, chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may increase? And what does he say? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And you can just read that whole chapter to get more enlightening from it. So those who mourn over their sin are extremely fortunate because that is only possible when one has been redeemed. Brothers and sisters, the world is not mourning over their sin. If anything, they're boasting of it. So if we're mourning over our sin, that is a wonderful thing. That only happens if you are someone who is redeemed. Then in chapter, uh, verse 5, it says, Blessed are the gentle. That's the Greek word praus, and it means meek. And I love any time I hear and see the word for meek. Oftentimes it's, it's, it's used with humility, and sometimes the translation translates it wrong. And they're very closely connected, no doubt about it, but it's two different words. The idea behind the word meek is power under control. Power under control. And of course, under, that means for us, under control of the Holy Spirit within us. And I can't help thinking of a very powerful animal, like maybe a horse, as the term was understood back then. Or maybe a lion or a tiger being trained in like a circus. Or maybe, for us, this is more relatable, a really, really big dog. I love one day, one day, I love to get just a massive dog, like a mastiff. You know, I love a borbo. It's a South, South African mastiff. It's like 175 to 225 pounds. That beautiful, big, kind of like pit bull kind of face, right? That's the kind of dog I like, okay? And you know, because that's the dog that I have, smaller version, 
right? But think about this for a second. If they're trained properly, they're no harm to people. They really aren't. But it doesn't mean that they're no longer powerful, right? If they want, they can rip most of us to shreds. But they're under control of the master. Those who are gentle and meek demonstrate that they are not their own master. But now that they are a servant of the king, they belong both body and soul to the Lord. And they are blessed because of it. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger, paneo, and thirst, dipseo. Both of these verbs are participles. And participles are what we call verbal adjectives. That means that they are descriptive of the subject. They're hungry and they're thirsty for something. And that something is righteousness. But if we think just for a moment about these words we can see that they carry some implications, do they not? Usually, when one is hungry or thirsty, what did they do? They eat or they drink or they seek to go eat and drink. So blessed are those who have a deep need for righteousness to rule and reign. But but they know that until righteousness reigns, they're living in a world that is temporarily Satan's. But their hunger and thirst leads them to being compelled to be righteous for the glory of the king. Because they know that righteousness, right living, which means obedience to the law, by the way, pleases the Lord. The only purpose of our existence. The purpose of our salvation. You know, we went through, for those of us that have been here on Sunday evenings, we just got done going through the journey in Leviticus. Not easy to preach on, but a tremendous blessing nonetheless. I had the honor of preaching in chapter 11 and chapter 12. Chapter 11 was clean and unclean animals, and chapter 12 was purification after childbirth. And it was, some of the stuff seemed very bizarre to us and hard to preach on. And as we're looking at all these laws, I had mentioned to the church when I preached this that We can have two attitudes. We can say negatively, Lord, why are you doing this to me? Why, why, why? Because we don't understand. Or we can have the attitude, or we can have this attitude by saying, Lord, thank you for doing this to me. You see, the nation of Israel had to get to the point, as we do as the church, of loving the things that God loves and hating the things that God hates. And God revealed what he desired very clearly to the nation of Israel. They didn't have to understand all of it. They just needed to believe it and honor it because it came from a loving God. God showed them, this is what pleases me. They're not left in the dark, and neither are we. Look what it says here in Deuteronomy chapter 4. I love this. Verse 5 says, See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear of all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. 
For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I'm setting before you today? And you know what the answer to that is, church? There was no great nation. And in the same way, there is no greater people on earth than the elect people of God. And because of this, we are to be about his business. And when we are about his business, we are extremely blessed. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful. Merciful means that they demonstrate or show mercy to others. And it's always good to be reminded of what mercy means because some people have a very warped understanding of mercy. They think that God, that God owes us mercy. That we don't understand what mercy actually means. Mercy means not getting what we deserve, right? So when one shows mercy to another, it carries the implication that it is in their power to not show it. And you know what that means? It means justice, right? That's what it means, justice. It means giving the other party what they actually deserve. And that is what? Punishment, usually. So the believer who is merciful has a good grasp of the greatness of their salvation, which was freely given to them. If God was not merciful to us, we would still be in our sins. We would not be able to say, our Father in heaven, because He's not our Father. He tells us to do justly, right, in Micah 6, 8. He says to love mercy because we've been given a tremendous amount of it. Chapter, uh, verse 8 says, Blessed are the poor in heart. And I mentioned this a little bit a few weeks ago when I pre uh, preached. And pure in heart means clean in the inner self. I had mentioned that this is where we want to be in our sanctification. We want to be sincere lovers of God. We want to have good motives behind our actions. We want to get to the point where our thinking is in fact Pure. Again, Calvin said, <coughs> purity, I'm talking so fast, I know, I'm so sorry. <clears throat> Calvin said, purity of heart is universally acknowledged to be the mother of all virtues. And I agree with that. A pure in heart means that they are unmoved and focused on pleasing the Lord. That is their aim. Your mind, as Isaiah says, is stayed on the Lord. And when someone's mind is always on God and His ways, church, great things are going to happen. Verse 9 says, blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers, one who brings about peace, one who is about reconciling. We live in a world that is always fighting over this and that. Sadly, the church often acts the same way. And I'm not saying Bible Baptist, the church in general, though Bible Baptist is not immune from it. We're not perfect, right? What is the opposite of this? I think of some words, maybe for our help. Think of words like antagonize or aggravating or opposing, right? One who is always causing strife or division. 
God has a lot to say to his church about that. Well, what does the scripture say? Hebrews 12, verse 14 says, Pursue peace with all men. Is it going to happen? 100% guarantee? Not saying that. He says, talking to you as individuals, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. He says this in Romans 12, verse 18, if possible, it may not be possible, but it says if possible, so far as it depends on you, worry about yourself, be at peace with all men. In other words, you do your part. Don't worry about what the other person's doing. And imagine if everyone has that same mindset, good things are going to happen. Proverbs 17, 14 says, The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. And oftentimes, church, we demonstrate the opposite of peacemaking because we put ourselves before others. And Paul was very clear to the Philippian church. He says this in chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So peacemakers are blessed. Then it says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Again, this is a perfect passive participle that describes the saint. He has suffered for doing good. He is for the truth, and because this is his desire, the world is against him. God tells us that we are fortunate to be able to go through such things. Think of Peter and John when they were beaten because of their Lord, beaten for their proclamation of the gospel, and they praise God that they were considered worthy to even go through such a thing. None of this makes any sense unless we see this through a spiritual lens. Again, 1 Peter 3, 14 and 17, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and nor do be troubled. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. So when we suffer for being a right-doer, consider yourself to be extremely fortunate because the Lord has declared it. Then it says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now this again goes with verse 10 and it has to do with people being against us because of our loyalty to Christ. And the first thing that comes to my mind is all that the Lord said concerning this in His Word. Jesus was very straightforward with His people. He was not a cookie-cutter Christian. He reminded them that there is a cost to following Him, right? There is, in fact, a cost. 
He says this in Matthew 16. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must, that's an important word, deny himself and take up his cross, whatever that may be, and follow me. Paul again reminded Timothy of the same things as a way to encourage him and to press on in the ministry that was given to him. And he says this in his second letter. Verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That is chapter 3, verse 12. So blessed are people that go through such things. And that is a blessing in and of itself. Because my next thing is going to say why they are blessed. And understand, all those blessings are blessings in and of themselves. I hope you guys understand what I'm saying. But now let's look at why they are blessed. So we only went through the first clause, describing those who are blessed. Now I want to see something that I find to be very interesting and helpful. The way everything was written was indeed the breath of God. It was written in a time where the language was somewhat universal in that area, right? And the language itself was pretty amazing. The Greek language is pretty amazing. There's so many words to describe certain things. So the second clause here tells us why they are blessed. And we either see is or shall. And I notice three things here. In verses 3 and 10, we see is, which implies the present. And then in verses 4 to 9, we see shall, which implies the future. The is and the shall both are indicatives, which is very important. Then in verses 11 and 12, we see something completely different in the form of a command. And what we see oftentimes in Scripture is what theologians call the already, not yet. Pastor actually, I think, mentioned this a few weeks ago. And perhaps the most clear, this is most clear in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, where he says, in these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I know for sure I am not glorified yet. But it's the already, not yet. It is a done deal for the saint. So let's look at this now. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is, again, is present active indicative. One can only understand their spiritual bankruptcy when they are born again of the Spirit, we said. It is true evidence of the believer. One cannot come to terms with his or her condition apart from the work of regeneration. The work of regeneration leaves us in a state of perpetual recognition of our need for spiritual cleansing and gratitude towards God for doing all the work and taking care of it. It is a present reality that the kingdom of God is theirs now, presently. They are part of it. The focus here is on the already. Then now I'm going to just lump four to nine together. It says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So as we saw here, shall is future indicative. And these verses speak of the blessings of those who are described with these certain godly adjectives or verbs. They point forward to realities yet to come, but are in fact theirs. The focus on these verses is on the not yet rather than the already. And by doing this, our Lord is bringing comfort to his disciples for what lies ahead for them. He wants them to be forward-looking always. Hope has to do with looking forward, church. We know that hope is not a crossing-the-fingers kind of hope that most people use it for, but hope is, in fact, a confident expectation that what God has said, we're standing on the promises of God, right? That's what we sung today. That everything He said is, in fact, true, and we believe it. Did not Paul encourage those whom he ministered to with the same things? Look what he says here in Philippians chapter 3. The long passage, but I'm going to read the whole thing. Chapter 3, verses 7 to 16. It says, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Remember, Paul, born into a good family, great teacher, a Pharisee of Pharisee, had a lot of credentials, Right? He says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus." the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Not that I have already obtained it or I've already become perfect, but what does He say here? I press on so that I may lay hold for that which also I was laid hold of, hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Then he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Such beautiful words. Then he says, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. And brothers and sisters, we have a great reward in the age to come. Then in verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The same exact thing that he said in verse 3. Again, verse 10 is present, active, indicative. Have been persecuted is perfect, passive, participle. Something that has occurred and continues to occur. It is descriptive of the person. They are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And who is righteous? 
but our Lord and our Lord alone. So they are persecuted for the sake of the Lord. And he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is again the reality that the kingdom of God is theirs presently now. They are part of it. The focus now on the the, uh, already. Something amazing has happened. Why would we suffer for this? Because we have been convinced and are still convinced that everything that our Lord told us in Scripture is, in fact, true. Romans 8, 18 and verses 24 to 25 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. This is nothing compared to the greatness that awaits me. Verse 24, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait for it, we wait eagerly for it. Then, in verses 11 to 12, it says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we see both in the beginning, we saw is and shall, all indicatives. And then in verse 12, we see rejoice and be glad. And this is a present active imperatives. So he's going from using indicatives to now giving imperatives. And an important concept in theology is looking at the imperatives in light of the indicatives. The imperatives would leave us without any hope if there wasn't positive indicatives. In other words, if I wasn't a child of God, I could not obey anything. Why? I'm in bondage to my own will who wants nothing to do with God. And yet now when he says it this way, it's completely different when he's talking to God's people. That is indicative of us, who we are. So after all that the Lord has been saying, he now commands them to rejoice and be glad. You don't normally think of words like rejoice and be glad after we have been persecuted and insulted and falsely accused. It just doesn't normally come in our speech. We also don't look at these words as something commandful, but nonetheless, they are. And these commands are based on the objective reality that we are new creations in Christ Jesus. It is based on the reality of how fortunate we are to be his chosen ones. So if we suffer, don't weep over this, our Lord says, but rejoice and be glad for our reward is coming. It is a sure thing, church. It is better than anything we can imagine. So after all these things, the Lord says, no, you rejoice. You be glad. No one has it better than you in this world. I am your master. But I want us to see something else here as well. I believe there is another reality expressed in in this passage. I believe that this is going to be helpful for our sanctification as well. Remember that he was speaking to the Jews who were under the rule of Rome. 
And they were expecting the Messiah to come and make everything right in their generation. And Jesus had to remind them that it was not yet to come like they're expecting. But there are realities that are present as well, I believe, in verses 4 to 9, which speak of future. We saw what will happen, right? The focus is certainly on the not yet in the age to come, but I believe it is also not that far off. In other words, future isn't just the age to come. Any moment after another moment is future. Two seconds from now is future, right? So let me explain, and hopefully you will see where I'm going. You don't think I've completely lost my mind. I want you to be real with yourselves for a moment. As you will see in verses 4 to 9, none of us have mastered what is being said. We don't always perfectly do the things said in the first clause. But there's something that, should, that stood out to me in a few of them. I'm not going to go to all, just a few of them. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So certainly we will, we will experience the perfect comfort that will come in the age to come. There will be no more sin, and there will only be righteousness everywhere. Everywhere righteousness, including my own. But can I say this? When I sin, and I mourn over it, and repent of it, and remember that I have been cleansed from all of it, I experience great comfort immediately. Immediately. I experience His mercies that are new daily. Yes, I'll be comforted in the age to come, but I am comforted almost immediately after I mourn and repent of my sin. But if I grieve and quench the Spirit by disobedience, I won't be mourning over my sin. In verse 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Satisfied. Think of that word. I hate sin. I hate it. It's a love-hate thing. Be honest. Right? My flesh still loves it, but the new man in Christ hates it. I hate sin. I can say it. I hate it mostly in who? In me, right? Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is something that comes from a steadfast spirit that wants to love the Lord. If I'm experiencing this, there is an unexplainable feeling of great satisfaction immediately. There is thanksgiving that I am no longer who I am capable of. I am satisfied. In my Lord. Nothing is greater than that. It is a wonderful thing. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Does every believer show mercy all the time? I wish I mastered this, and I think I'm pretty merciful, to be honest with you. I know I don't deserve the age to come, though it is mine, but when we show mercy to others, as God has shown mercy to us, we oftentimes will receive the same back, and we do. God is merciful to us in this age. The Scripture says His mercies are new daily. There's a sense of immediacy to it. 
Chapter 8, blessed are the pure in heart. And you know this one is my favorite. For they shall see God. We will see Christ face to face one day. He is the brightness of heaven. I agree that this is the mother of all virtues. Again, we have to be reminded that we are not always pure in heart. Asaph, two weeks ago when he read the psalm, was not pure in heart when he was envious of the wicked. We are called to be, and that certainly should be descriptive of the new life in Christ. But when someone is filled with the Spirit and demonstrates the Spirit's fruit, they not only have the reality of seeing God face to face one day, that is true, but they shall see God in all the details of their present life in this age. They don't miss Him in the details. I don't want to miss God in any of the details. I want to see Him in everything. Do we realize what an amazing blessing that is, church? The immature believer oftentimes does not see God at work in all the areas because their focus is off. Their motives oftentimes are not right, and as a result, they have a blurred vision. Or they have a blurred vision, therefore the motives aren't right. But when we are set on seeking Him and loving Him and serving Him with all of our being and doing all of this His way, we will see Him at work in everything. And there's so much satisfaction in that. And there's so much more here, but again, you guys look at it for yourself. I'm limited. Remember that these verses should be descriptive of each and every one of us, right? And that we should always make it our aim to be this for the glory of God. So I'm going to close with the passage that I already read in here. Because I think it's just a perfect place to close. But before I read that, I want to read another verse, 1 Peter 2.9. Which says this, and I love this verse. It says, but you, who is you, church? The church, right? You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for, uh, for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now here Peter is picking little tidbits from the Old Testament, all these things that were descriptive of the nation of Israel. And the New Testament tells us that he is not a Jew who is outward, meaning a physical Jew, but a true Jew is one who has been circumcised in the heart, right? Galatians says that the church is called the Israel of God, true Israel consisting of believing Israel, Jewish people, and believing non-Jews. That is what true Israel is. So let's look at Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9 again. And understand that he is speaking to his people, his people who are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Sure, this was speaking to the nation of Israel at that time. But if you're a part of the nation of Israel and you reject the Jewish Messiah, you are not a child of God. And anyone that believes in the Jewish Messiah is, in fact, a child of God. We are heirs of Abraham. Look what it says here in Deuteronomy. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, your whole being. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Listen, parents, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your head and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, what is he saying? Church, treasure these words and keep them, for you are my people, and that's how you ought to be. So let's be like we are supposed to be. Be the way we uh, be who he has called us to be as new creations in Christ Jesus. And don't settle for anything less, church. And until he calls us home, we are a work in progress, right? So let's pray. And I'm going to trust that God spoke to us through his word. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how powerful it is to save to help us to grow more and more like your son, Jesus. I thank you that your word is for your people, for apart from the spirit, no one can understand it. And here we are, church, as those who have been bought with the precious blood of the son. We have your Holy Spirit. We can understand the words of the living God. Talk about a precious, talk about a privileged people. That's who we are. Help us, Lord God, to shine our lights and to be salty. Be the hands and feet of Christ while we are here on this earth. All to your glory and to you call us home. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we close the service in doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, well, this is where we're going to have our, uh, our business meeting, so... I don't think you're on. All right. If you're a member, you have to stay. If you're not a member and you want to see how we conduct a business meeting, that's fine. You can hang out. But we're going to take one minute for everyone to leave who's not going to stay. This way we could just uh, move on. Don't want to keep you too long.
Mr. Chairman, can you appoint a deacon to bring a couple of ballots down to preschool park? Okay, so before we uh, open the meeting, we need a, a quorum to open the meeting. So what we'll do is we'll, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say each member's name that's on the roll, and I need you to respond loudly here, so that this way Dave can count you and we'll make sure we have enough people. So... Here we go, nice and loud. Please respond. Abamont DJ. Here. Abamont John. Here. Abella Alvin. Here. Abella Janet. Nursery. Nursery, okay. Adam Clifford. Adam Richard. Aprich Tina. Here. Connie Arciega. Faith Ammonides. Close. Here. Close, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Lord is Arias. Arnold Jacob, Arnold April, Bolognese Joe, Bolognese Lynn, Boza Danya. I saw her. Danya. Okay. Wendia, Erica. Wendia, Elizabeth. Juanita, Annie. Ramona Cardona. Cassiano Charlene. Castaneda Gabe. Castaneda Becky. Nursery, okay. Castaneda Izzy. Salantano Cheryl. Collado Dave. Collado Liz. Pastor's here. Eileen's here. John Damon. He's here. Das Irene. Das Chandra. Das Max. Das Preeti. Here. Cliff. Wait, Cliff is somewhere. All right. Uh, Garcia Roberto. Here. Garcia Silvia. Here. Hugh Mimi. Japan Melanie. Johnson Cynthia. Here. <laughs> Just making sure. Lane Jimmy, Lane Pat is here, Lasky Todd, Lasky Kim, LaPara Nancy, Leucci Dom, I'm here physically, Leucci Sharon, <coughs> Lopez Carey Antonio, Luque Javier, Christina, May, Julie. Yeah. Max. Yeah. McCleavy, Ed. Yeah. Jasper's not here. Parlette. Yeah. Oh. 